Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship you. We pray that you will be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. God is in control. I got some amens in the first service when I said that. It's because we're on the live stream now and you all. God is in control. Do you believe that? Good. Now, what do you mean by it? What do you what do you mean by that phrase? God is in control. Is it a phrase that gives you comfort? Is it a phrase that you say? The control of God or the the sovereignty of God, his, his power and his authority, is a core belief of Christianity. All threads of Christianity, in some way, shape, or form, affirm that God is sovereign. He's all powerful, and he has his hand in some way in the affairs of his creation. I've become more and more convinced over the years that the nuances in how we understand this concept are crucial. This is not just a philosophical exercise, but how we understand the control of God and how He uses it and exercises His control over His creation has extremely practical implications for how we live our lives. God is in control. Do you believe that? What do you mean by it? I did some crowdsourcing earlier this week. I posted on Facebook a very short question that simply asked Christian friends of mine on Facebook, what does the phrase God is in control mean to you? Some of you saw this. Some of you responded to this, which I love. I love getting interaction. Uh, I I grew up in church. I grew up in youth group. I went to a Christian college, and I was a youth pastor at two churches before I came here. So I've got Christian friends from a lot of different pockets. Um, And so I didn't want to be too specific with the question. I wanted to be really kind of vague. What do you mean by this really kind of general statement, God is in control? And I got a lot of responses. And they varied quite a bit. Some of these responses sounded similar to the concept of karma, that the good you put out into the world in some way, shape, or form will come back to you. The bad you put out in the world will in some way, shape, or form come back to you. Some responses described God as more of a puppet master that causes everything, whether it be big or small, in your life and throughout history to happen. And there were some responses that just simply admitted to to struggling with the concept and not really understanding what it means. Perhaps more interesting, some people shared personal experiences of healings, while others expressed how harmful the phrase was to them when they experienced a tragedy and someone said it to them. My biggest motivation in making that post on Facebook is the same motivation of the sermon this morning. It's just to simply spark some thought in us. 
What do we mean when we say this phrase or phrases like this? And I'm going to warn you right here, right now, I may raise more questions than I do give answers. But you see, I'm afraid that this is a phrase that we Christians say without stopping to think what we mean by it. And so I ask you, is this a phrase you can see yourself saying, whether out loud or quietly to yourself? And if so, what do you mean by it? It's particularly relevant this year and this week in the midst of a pandemic and in the midst of the mess we experienced in D.C., I heard this phrase used this year in lots of ways, saying we have nothing to worry about with the pandemic or the election or anything else because, and now you can say it with me, God is in control. More than anything else, I hope this morning to simply cause us to examine what we think about this phrase, about this concept. And we may not all come to the same conclusions, and that's okay. But I do hope by looking at three stories in Scripture, we will be helped along towards a deeper understanding of the way in which God is in control in the story of humanity and in our lives. The first story picks up where we left off last week. Pastor Phil preached from the story in Matthew 2 in the first 12 verses. We're told about the the magi or the wise men who follow a star looking for a Messiah being born, a king of the Jews. And they meet somebody along the way. They stop and they talk to this man along the way. You all know his name? Who did, he, who did they meet along the way that they talked to? A very powerful man. Herod, yes, very good. So they met Herod along their way and they said, hey, we're looking for the, the king of the Jews. Herod thought, "Uh uh-oh, I thought I was the king of the Jews. And Herod tells tells them, yeah, I think maybe Bethlehem. Come back and tell me where you find him. I'd like to go worship him too. Wink, wink. They're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. right? And so last week's story ends with uh, the wise men being warned not to go back to Herod, and so they, they don't. They go home a different way. And that's where we pick up the story today. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, it, says, it begins by saying, Now after they had left, that's the wise men. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet through spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were 2 years old and under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. 
She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's easy to see God in control, first guiding the wise men and keeping them away from Herod on their way home, and then guiding Joseph through dreams to protect Jesus from Herod. If you are Joseph in this story, it's easy to look back and say, wow, look at how God was in control protecting us. Some of you have had experiences like this. I know some of those stories from some of you sitting in these pews where it's clear and obvious to you looking back that God was protecting you. Or where it's clear and obvious to you that God has controlled a situation in some way for your good. Praise God for those stories. I celebrate those stories with you today. If that's your personal experience, I invite you for a moment to think about the experience of others who have had different experiences. What if you aren't Joseph or Mary or Jesus in this story? What if you are the characters whose names we don't hear? This story reveals God's protection of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus But it is also a story about the tragic genocide of children. How would it feel if you were the parents in that part of the story and you were to hear Joseph saying, wow, God is in control. Here again, verse 18, which is a quote from Jeremiah 31 that says, A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. This quote from Jeremiah 31 portrays a brokenness, a sense of hopelessness from the Israelites in exile in Babylon. It's used here to describe what was experienced at the hands of Herod. Let the last line sink in. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. This is the description of someone who has just experienced great tragedy. For some of you, this has been a closer representation of your experience. You've seen from afar the stories play out of God delivering someone else from harm, but then it has fallen on you. You hear the phrase, God is in control, and you can't help but wonder why His control has saved someone else from tragedy, but not you. 
Let's take a look at another story. It's eerily similar to this story. It's well known from the Old Testament. It foreshadows the story that we just read. In Exodus 1 and 2, we're told the story of another power-hungry ruler just like Herod, whose authority and power is being threatened just like Herod. Pharaoh sees the Israelites are growing in number. And he decides to have all the males who were born killed. Just like Herod, he goes after the weak children. But I'm sure you know how this story ends. uh, Moses' mother places him in a basket in the river, and his sister sees that he is actually delivered into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter into safety. He then grows up to become a savior to the Israelite people. It's eerily similar to the story we just read from Matthew 2. Here's another one that I'm guessing a lot of you actually haven't heard before. It's also in the Old Testament, and it's also eerily similar. It's almost as if there's a consistency to the way in which God is working through each of these stories. In 2 Kings chapter 11, we hear a story about yet another power-hungry ruler whose authority is being threatened. This time her name is Queen Athaliah. In order to ensure that she can keep the throne, she attempts to wipe out the entire royal line of David. Why is this important? Those those of you who are Old Testament buffs or uh, have read Matthew chapter 1 that came right before what we read last week and this week, the line of David, I heard somebody saying it, is the line from which Jesus comes. See, it's been God's plan for a long time that the Messiah would come from the line of David, this royal line. And now Queen Athaliah decides she's going to take the throne and she wants to ensure that the line of David never gets it back. And so 2 Kings chapter 11 says that she uh, sends people to the nursery, specifically, again, going after the innocent, the children, to destroy them all, to murder them. But there's a woman and a priest who steal little baby Joash from the nursery. And they hide him away for years until he's old enough to reclaim the throne from the royal line of David. The line through which the genealogy in Matthew tells us that Jesus comes. Take a look at some of these similarities. We've got a chart here that's going to just show this in very simple terms. In Exodus 1 and 2, 2 Kings 11 and Matthew 2. In each case, there's an evil ruler, Pharaoh, Athaliah, and Herod. And in each case, there's a baby who will be a savior to the people, Moses, Joash, and Jesus. And in each case, there's at least one, in some cases many, faithful servants. Miriam, who we learn later is the name of Moses' sister. Jehoiada, who's the name of the priest who takes care of this baby and and protects the secret of his, his life. 
and Joseph, who takes his family to Egypt. There's some consistency in these stories. But there's something else that's also consistent in these stories. There's a God who is working out his control in some way, shape, or form. There's also incredibly tragic loss of life due to the prideful, sinful actions of humanity. And so I ask you, with these stories in mind, what does it mean for us to say God is in control? Our United Methodist beliefs reject both extremes, as it often does. We Methodists believe in a God who has created all things and is active within that creation. He has not abandoned us. He is not an absent God. On the other side, we Methodists do not affirm and never have that God is a puppet master. We do not believe that God has controlled Pharaoh, Athaliah, or Herod to the destruction of children in these stories. Nor do we believe that God has controlled your life in a way that has directed tragedy to occur. But as I said earlier, this is more than just a philosophical conversation. Imagine how it would make the parents of these stories feel if your response to the killing of the innocent children was simply, relax, God is in control. If Rachel, who is being used in a metaphorical sense in Matthew 2, could not be consoled about the tragedy that befell her children, then we cannot expect this simple declaration of God's control to console tragedies in our world today. And so in the midst of one of the most difficult years in recent history, with a pandemic and civil unrest, increasingly rising issues in our country, it's too early for final statistics, but the CDC director has warned that there has been a, a, a spike in deaths by suicide, as well as drug-related deaths this year. This has been a difficult year. Christians, oftentimes our confident claims of God's control has the opposite effect that we mean for it to have. Scripture, as well as personal experience, confirms for us that while God may have the power to control all things, He's not exercising that control to cause all things to happen. I know, I know. Some of you are thinking, Jeremy, this is our first Sunday back to in-person worship. We came here for some encouragement. Don't worry, I'm getting there. Because this is intensely practical. What if Moses' mother and sister heard about the threat from Pharaoh against the children and simply tossed up their hands and said, God is in control. What if the priest in 2 Kings 11 had not hidden the baby Joash from the evil queen Athaliah, but instead had simply thrown up his hands and said, God is in control. What if Joseph heard about the threat from Herod and didn't take his family to Egypt, but stayed there and just said, God is in control. In each case, God exercised his control 
by guiding His faithful followers to take action, to care for those who are in harm's way. When you gave your life to Christ, you took up a call to go and do likewise. Probably not to become a Moses, a Joash, or Jesus, but to play the role of Miriam, Moses' sister, or Jehoiada, who patiently cared for the baby king Joash, or Joseph, who was warned against a threat and guided Mary and Jesus to safety. Ultimately, this has to be our response as Christians. And this is why the leaders of this church, even though knowing it was an unpopular decision, chose to have several weeks without in-person worship, including Christmas Eve. We do not see the sovereignty or control of God as a call to inaction, but a call to action. It's also why if case numbers rise back up, we'll make that tough decision again, and we hope that we don't have to. Here's the encouragement. Those three stories from Scripture also show us that God has been and continues to guide humanity towards a certain end and purpose. God did not allow the Israelites to be completely destroyed. God did not allow the line of David to be wiped out by the evil queen. God did not allow the horrific actions of Herod to stop Jesus from growing from a baby to a man who would eventually die on the cross for us. So yes, God has a purpose God has a plan, and God has the power to bring that plan to fruition, and He will. God is controlling humanity towards that end, towards an ultimate redemption, and He continues to be guiding us towards that. And the good news is that you and I get to play the role of His faithful followers who participate in the coming of His kingdom who participate in His work here on earth. You and I get to participate in and through our actions as He leads us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank You that You are a God who is present with us. You are with us and You are for us. We thank You that You are not an absent God. We thank you and praise you for the stories, the ways in which you have healed and you have guided. And God, along with the voice of Rachel, we weep with those who have experienced tragedy. We hold these two things in tension. We trust that you are in control while also acknowledging that things happen in this life that you allow We do not claim all the answers, but we continue to love you and trust you and serve you. May we be servants like Joseph and Jehoiada and Miriam, who in the midst of tragedy hear from you what a way forward might be. Guide us and direct us. God, we pray that you will lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.